everyone, it's Mark. Today's episode is sponsored by Paint Care. Paint Care is the industry's own solution for the problem of post-consumer paint waste. The organization has already collected over 50 million gallons and redirected them from landfills and waterways. Paint Care currently operates in 10 states and the District of Columbia with New York, the 11th state, coming online in May of 2022. Paint Care is both good for the environment and your business. 35% of dealers who sign up to be a Paint Care drop-off location report new customers shopping in their store as a direct result of their participation in Paint Care. To learn more about Paint Care, go to paintcare.org forward slash retailers. everybody. Thanks for joining me today. With me today on my podcast is Gina Schaefer. Gina and her husband are the co-owners of a few cool hardware stores. That's an ACE dealership in Washington, D.C. They have 13 stores in the Washington metro area. That includes Baltimore, Maryland, and Northern Virginia. I came across Gina after I noticed a LinkedIn post had shown that she had spoken at a some sort of White House event relating to the activities of small business. And I thought that that was really cool that she got an opportunity to do that. And so I reached out to her and we had a conversation. She's got a really interesting business. And what I really want to point dealers to, there are two parts of the conversation that I thought were really interesting. One is how she uses her business as a platform for socially conscious work that she likes to do. And uh, we got into a really interesting conversation about that. Gina has uh, some political interests. And so uh, we talked a little bit about that. But your businesses give you an opportunity to do other sorts of advocacy work. If politics is not your thing, as it is for Gina, it gives you the opportunity to do other sorts of advocacy work in your local communities. And I always was into doing stuff like that. And so having a bit of a heart of an advocate myself. And so I let that conversation go. And I thought it was a really interesting one. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about Gina's situation is that her stores recently became an ESOP. ESOP is an employee stock ownership program. And basically what Gina and her husband did was through an ESOP program, they sold 30% of their company to their employees. Gina is the second dealer that I've spoken to just in the last couple of weeks who have uh, transitioned their businesses to employee-owned. There are different configurations. Gina went with an ESOP, the dealer I spoke to the other day, uh, went with an employee-owned cooperative, but there are uh, multiple options even beyond that. But either way, whatever direction it ends up being the right one for you, the concept of employee ownership is really a great one. There's lots of reasons to go the route of employee ownership. This fellow I was telling you about who just sold his stores to, to his employees through a cooperative, he really did it because he didn't want to sell his stores to private equity. He had two large stores, very successful business, and he didn't want to sell them to private equity for his own reasons of social consciousness. He feels like the 1% had enough and he wanted to make an opportunity available to the 99%. And, and that's one good reason to do it. And I'll let Gina share with you her reasons why she did it. But in the end, it's just a really good opportunity. It's another outlet for a dealer to have 
uh, to exit out of their business. And this is not for everybody. Listen, if you have one store and your accounting is a little lax, two stores, your accounting is a little lax, then ESOP or employee ownership may not be for you. But if you've got five plus stores and you take care to make sure that, that you do your accounting properly and that your business is capable of withstanding, you know, a, a transparent uh, audit of what's going on in there, then employee ownership really gives you an opportunity to find another buyer uh, for your business, which for A stores, it's not so hard to find a buyer for chains of A stores. If Gina had decided not to go the direction of an ESOP, if she had just decided to sell her stores, there are private equity companies that would have bought them. Same thing for this other fellow I was telling you about is he's got two stores. They're primarily lumber yards. I know him through the paint business, but they're primarily lumber yards. Somebody would have bought those two big successful lumber yards because there are private equity firms that are interested in those uh, all around the United States. But for paint stores, the value is just not there. And so this is another way for paint dealers to exit the business. So anyway, whatever your reason is, it's a great topic to listen to. And it's and Gina does a terrific job with it. So thanks very much for tuning in today. I always appreciate it. Like and subscribe. Uh, Brian, put my email up on the screen. If there's a topic that you're interested in me covering, I'd love to hear from you. And Here's Gina. So, hey, everybody, thanks for joining me today. With me today on my podcast is Gina Schaefer. Gina is the co owner of a few cool hardware stores in Washington, D.C. Gina, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Mark. Thanks for having me. Gina, I have to apologize. Before we record the episode that we're about to record, I feel like I have to out myself. Gina and I just recorded a 45-minute episode, which as I went to turn the recording device off to signify the end of the recording, I realized that I had never returned it on to begin with. And so my apologies, Gina, for doing that. That is the second time I've done that to anybody. No problem. I promise. And no problem. So a few cool hardware stores is in Washington, D.C. I know you have uh, multiple ACE locations. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your business now and your career path that led to where you are now? Sure. So I own and operate 13 ACE hardware stores with my husband, Mark Friedman, and now 160 of our teammates, which we'll talk about later, I think, when we you're going to ask me about an ESOP, our ESOP. Um, but I opened the first location in 2003. I had been working in the technology industry and was in this cycle of boom and bust. And I'd get a job at a startup that got VC money, and then they would go out of business and lay me off. And uh, the third time that happened, uh, it just so happened that we, Mark and I, had moved to a neighborhood called Logan Circle. We weren't married yet. Logan Circle was one of the neighborhoods that had been destroyed by the riots when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it had essentially sat dormant for 30 years. I mean, it was just full of drug dealers and prostitutes and crime and Every other house, I'm not exaggerating, was boarded up. And I bought a condo there. I worked with a real estate agent who said, hey, this is the only place you can afford. And I cried a little bit. And then I moved to this neighborhood that became very near and dear to me. And then Mark, when we uh, got married, and everybody wished we had a hardware store. And so the third time I got laid off, I said, well, I need a job. I've always wanted to own my own business. The neighborhood needs a hardware store and uh, a beautiful combination happened. And so now we have 13. Like I said, we have about 260 teammates. Uh, we flex to about 300 in the spring. So we're getting ready to, to uh, kick in our, our spring hiring. We're in Washington, DC, Baltimore City. Believe it or not, we opened in Baltimore City in 2007. There were no ACE hardware stores there. 
And it was just a wide open market with no big box stores either. There were a couple very small independent hardware stores, but not a lot of competition. And so that city has been wonderful for us. We have a couple stores in Montgomery County, Maryland, and then one in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and then just to sort of level set of, we've owned 14. So we closed the store a couple of years ago, but of the 14, we have purchased four and built 10 from scratch. What a great story you guys have. And were you involved in building those doors from scratch? What has been your role in that? Well, so at the very beginning, I, I love talking about that first location. I think that I should, I probably should write some sort of primer on how to screw up opening a retail store. Um, I didn't know anything, nothing at all. And I, Mark stayed in his tech job. His, his plan was never to join me in the hardware business. And so I started the build out in that first location and was there almost every day. I mean, we started setting the shelves before the contractors even put in the heat and the electricity because I got impatient and was tired of waiting. The visual merchandisers that Ace sent had to wear coats and gloves because it was so cold in the space. And, but yeah, I've been from the beginning. Uh, now, Mark gets more involved in the, the real estate and negotiation side when we expand, but we've always actively chosen the locations and met with the landlords and uh, worked you know, beginning to end through the, the expansion process. And during our prep, you talked about that first store and you referred to it as Recovery Hardware. What's that nickname all about? Um, Across the street now, it was down the street before because we've since moved our first location, was uh, the Whitman Walker Drug Addiction Services Program, part of the Whitman Walker Clinic in Washington, D.C. And in 2003, when we opened, a customer, a client of that rehab clinic came in and asked me for a job. And I said, yes. And he started working with us. And then he brought a friend who brought a friend who brought a friend. And the next thing I knew, we had um, this wonderful team that was very much comprised of people who were in some sort of drug or alcohol addiction program. One of those employees, whose name is also Mark, uh, came to me about eight years later and said, you know, in the community, we're known as recovery hardware. So it was a a badge of honor for me, proud moment for the store. It really meant to me that we were building a culture that that was truly part of the community and was doing something good. So that's it. And that neighborhood, I, I know that Logan Circle neighborhood, that neighborhood has recovered quite a bit. Open your store there as well. Yeah, it is very much night and day from when I first moved here in 1995. I mean, it's the amount of progress and growth has been remarkable. And so you've used your status as a locally owned business to, for others, socially active activities in your neighborhoods, particularly around you. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think probably besides sort of inadvertently hiring folks from the recovery community, we are inundated with politics in Washington. I always say you can really put blinders on and avoid it if you want to, but otherwise there are so many ways to get involved. I mean, in 2010, 2011, I started getting involved with an organization called Businesses for a Fair Minimum Wage um, to try and get the federal government to raise the federal minimum wage. So a lot of people don't know this, but about 20 states in the the United States still operate under the federal minimum wage guidelines, which is $7.25 an hour. And say what you will, nobody should have to live on $14,000 a year. And that's essentially what the federal government allows to happen by this law still being on the books. And so I started giving speeches with some congressmen, congresswomen and senators at that time to try and get the wages raised. You know what's happened since then, the federal government hasn't changed it. And so cities and jurisdictions have 
made our own our own laws. Right. And the market has, of course, brought its own decision on what it thinks of the federal minimum wage. Obviously, there's nobody listening to this now who owns a paint hardware lumber yard who thinks that they have any chance of hiring somebody for $7.25 an hour. No, I, I don't think so. You're absolutely right. And so it's time for that law to change. It might not be enough now to get to 15, but we have to start somewhere. And the phased in approach that we've done in Washington, D.C. and in, in, in Maryland has been much more comfortable as a business owner because you know what's coming. There's so many unknowns in the business. And even if it's an added expense, you know it's coming and we were able to phase it in. So um, one of the, the most vocal ways that we've been active in the community is by advocating on behalf of, of ways raising the, the federal minimum wage and the local local jurisdictions. The second way we've been really involved, and I should probably say I, not we in this case, I wrote my team into all kinds of things, but I'm on the board of a national organization called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. ILSR is an incredible nonprofit that operates in the research space. We do a lot of thought leadership and research and advocacy for broadband access, composting, alternative energy, and then one of the verticals is small business and the small business community, which is what I've been the most involved in most recently working on antitrust and monopoly legislation and and laws that are trying to we're trying to move through legislation now so you know you think about historically the big bells the bells for example when they were broken up or some of the other anti monopoly laws that that we've enforced in this country they kind of have gone by the wayside and now with big tech changing the fabric of business and how it looks and feels some of those laws really need to be reinstituted. And so the, there's been a big push in the last couple of years. And so that's the second national way that I've, I've been involved. And so it sounds to me like you let your business help you find a platform of social activism nationally. What would you say to retailers who are looking to use their business to be more involved locally? How would you suggest that they go about doing that? I think, you know, lots of retailers do this in a lot of ways. They may be involved with the Little League or the Girl Scouts. Um, that's a great way to start, even if you're not doing something like that. And if you're not doing something like that, or if you're not passionate about that, someone on your team probably is. There might be a dad that coaches Little League or a mom that's active at a homeless shelter or somebody on your team who's going to get excited about doing something in the community. And it always reflects back positively on the business when there's some sort of community involvement. You can start to layer on then ways to get involved, getting involved in a community or uh, association. Maybe there's a main street program in your neighborhood. Um, and the more involved you are, I think the more opportunities come to you to get involved and the more visibility you have to your business. I don't think those things do not operate independently. I want people to know that we are a locally owned, community serving business involved in the community because the big boxes aren't and the, the nameless online retailers aren't. And so I want people in the neighborhoods to remember that we are, and I want to do a lot of really great things in the community. So if somebody wants to just, just work on local, there's all those options. I agree. The community involvement is really such a great way for retailers to show the people that are supporting their business that we're not just locally owned, we live as if we're locally owned. And so we want to be involved in the areas around our business and in what happens around our business. For me in the Bronx, there were a number of homeless shelters. I always made sure that I was involved in the work that they were doing. I was always willing. Not so much politics is, is not my thing. I hear that you have that bug. That was never my thing, but I was always good at writing letters. And so I was willing to, if we were involved in something 
that was more socially conscious was my sort of issues. But that mm -hmm. a lot of times that requires a letter to a congressman or a hundred letters to congressmen. And I was always willing to do that. And you're right. Uh, the status that owning a successful local business uh, gives you the platform to be able to do that. And so retailers looking to make a difference and really show what it is to be locally owned. They have that platform if they want it. Politicians at any level, they can't do what they do unless they truly understand what their constituents are doing and what their constituents are going through. And I've heard from the most local politician through people in the president's office that they need to hear from retailers and business owners because they don't truly understand what it's like unless they were a business owner prior to going into politics. And that's not always the case. And so I've realized over the years that it's not me being obnoxious or super vocal about something or it's, it's an educational process. I, I hope to educate our elected officials on what it means to be a small business owner or work in a small business or live in Washington, DC. They want to hear from us. And so I, I feel like it's our duty to, to let them hear from us. And particularly on a local level, I had served uh, on a school board in a pretty large school district. We had about 30,000 people that, that lived in our wow. district. You'd be surprised. That's not students. That's people that lived in the district. Okay. But you'd be surprised how few interactions uh, you get when you're on a board that's managing a district of 30,000 people, right? And yeah. so the voices that step up that engage, they get heard. And so locally, you really have the ability to be involved. I was involved in my community in the Bronx in bringing flower beds to the, I don't know what you call them, the tree boxes on the sidewalks. Yep. That's something that was important to me because I felt like the neighborhood doesn't look as attractive as it should. And I felt like the people who live there deserve an attractive neighborhood. And I also felt like they'd be more likely to spend money in my store if the whole street in front of my store was more attractive. And yep. so stuff like that can really make a difference for a small business, a locally owned small business. I think it was Paulo Coelho, the author that said, I kept waiting for somebody to do something. And then I realized I was somebody. I think right. it was him that said that. But I love that quote because, yes. I, we, you know, we can sit around and complain about stuff or we could try and be helpful in even the tiniest ways. It, it, makes, a, it makes a big difference. So anyway, I, we do a lot of that. And for retailers listening, wondering, Mark, I thought this was a podcast about paint. Listen, this is what happens when two activists get on a microphone, right? <laughs> you said you didn't like politics, but you do. <laughs> right. I do. I don't, it's not the politics, it's the activism. I don't I don't care for the politics of things like political parties and who what party votes for what. It's the activism. I like to yeah. be involved in in making things better around me. At yep. the moment, this will be new to my listeners and readers. I haven't shared any of this. But at the moment, I'm, I'm working hard to help an Afghani family escape Afghanistan, oh. a guy that I know we are. I believe that within two weeks, he'll have a visa to oh. get out and get to Turkey. And I've been working with this kid for however long since the Taliban took over. And, you know, I, I find that all of that for me, all of that can be done with my pen. Whatever is your issue, local to your business it can be done. It can be done with your pen. It can be done with your lips. It can be done with your hiring practices. You can make a yep. difference in the communities around you. And I encourage retailers to be involved in stuff like that if that's where their interests are. Absolutely. 
And so uh, we had spoken a little bit about of the challenges of being an urban retailer. And I had some of those experiences in the Bronx as well. Why don't you share a little bit of what you see are some of the challenges and changes that are happening in that landscape? Well, I would say most specifically just coming out of COVID, if we can agree that we're coming out of COVID, whatever time period this is right now, um, a lot of the downtowns across the country have changed dramatically because people are not going to offices. While my stores, many of them are in the Washington and Baltimore city area, we're in neighborhoods in the cities. And so we haven't been devastated like some retailers have been or businesses because we're not in the central business district. I think that, you know, what, what remains to be seen over the next couple of years is how neighborhoods that were mostly businesses, central business districts, how they come out of this and what changes the restaurants, the, the community serving retail that was in those neighborhoods serving the business customer, how that changes. As long as people living in the neighborhoods on the fringes of those, those business districts don't decide to leave the city, I think we'll be okay. But of course, that remains to be seen. And what I see now along the like Logan Circle is the 14th Street corridor where Logan Circle is. Um, I think I just read that we have 14 or 15 open storefronts where businesses have gone out of business. And, and that's scary, right? That's, yes. that's a, a lack of safety for the neighborhood when you have dark storefronts. It's jobs that are missing in our community. It's community-facing services that are missing when they're, they're empty. And so it makes me nervous as a community member to think about cities changing in that regard, but we'll see. Those are, those are the immediate challenges that we face. Yeah. And one of the things that's hard for paint retailers, specifically in an urban setting, a lot of the ones that I speak to, they struggle with how expensive it is to maintain a business in an urban area and paint dealers... I know a lot of paint dealers that are very successful and make a lot of money, but it's it's not a high margin business. It's more of a high volume business. And so now you've got an urban setting. Yeah, you've got a lot of people, but your store is really small. You can't attract a lot of variety of customers and your rent is already so expensive that you can't really expand it. And so that I think is is sort of an ongoing problem in the major urban areas as well. And I, I think frankly, it's it's getting worse as more and more companies like the chains that seem to be able to pay Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks yep. seem to be able to pay anything they want for retail space. That sort of pushes out the Benjamin Moore dealer who can't afford to pay quite as much. And so that's been a challenge in the urban areas as well. We had a, a meeting about a week and a half ago with our real estate brokers. We've been talking about some expansion opportunities. And along that 14th Street corridor, despite the fact there are 15 empty storefronts, the asking rent is $80 a square foot, wow. which is ridiculously high. It seems to demonstrate a lack of awareness of how much empty space there is and how few retailers are opening um, in urban areas or anywhere, frankly, at this point. And so that's, that's a big concern. I think I might've mentioned to you this before. Ace came up with these great buttons for our team to wear years ago that talked about some of the benefits of shopping local. And one of them was rockstar parking. Well, you know, tongue in cheek for us, we don't, we don't have any parking in most of our right. spaces. And so our employees wore that as a badge of honor, like, yeah, we've got rockstar parking and it's for your bicycle out front. So that's, I mean, that's a fun challenge that we deal with in the city and we're willing to put up with it because so many people walk in on a daily basis, but if you're a paint dealer and you need a big truck to show up to your back door eight times a day to, to pick up paint or to drop off paint, it's a challenge. Yeah. We smile it was, through it. It was for us in the Bronx. We used to get a, a trailer from Benjamin Moore three days a week. And, and if there wasn't parking in front, 
it could be two hours that he would have to yep. sit there waiting for a spot. And so yeah. we used to get our deliveries from them. Always, we would be the first delivery in the morning just for their routing purposes. It was to their advantage. The problem is that we were always busy at that time of day. And so it really created problems for us. Yep. And there was nothing you could do about it because the urban setting just did not allow for any sort of changes to our infrastructure, you know, to the building itself that would allow us to make any sort of changes there. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Moving on, Gina, you've mentioned a couple of times during this call, you've mentioned your employees. I know that you guys have recently made a big change and you've gone to employee ownership through ESOP. Why don't we talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Sure. So um, I, I don't have any children and Mark, my husband and I have been asked repeatedly what our exit strategy was going to be. And so three years ago or so, we started talking about, well, what legitimately is our exit strategy? Do we want to be in this business until we're in our seventies? Do we want to transition out sooner than that? And how are we going to do that? And I, I will tell you that the thought of selling our business to a private equity company gave me an upset stomach. I didn't want that to be the exit strategy that we had. So we knew that was out of the question. Transitioning to a family member was out of the question. Uh, we were in Fort Collins, Colorado. We met some folks at the New Belgium Brewery Company, which is the brewery that owns the Fat Tire brand of beer. And at the time, they were an ESOP, an employee stock ownership. And the employees that we met with, co-owners, were so excited to tell us about it that we came back to Washington thinking, this is the path for us. We need to educate ourselves, figure out what this means. We think we can do this. And so uh, right before the pandemic started, we met with an advisor and decided that we were going to probably go that route. We had a lot of I's that we had to dot and T's to cross and things we had to learn. Um, and it's and a so big decision. Spent, it is a big decision. It's not, ex yeah. it's not inexpensive. There's a lot of people who get to put their hands in your business and, and uh, you have to be willing to share lots of things. Your books have to be clean. You have to be yes. making money. You have to have a strong culture. I mean, you could have a good business with just a unhealthy corporate culture, and that's not necessarily a good reason to transition. So we, we figured out that it was going to be perfect for us. We had a healthy you know, bottom line. We had a great culture. Uh, we were able to, to put the team around us that could help us create it. A lot of people don't know this, but the Department of Labor regulates ESOPs. And so once you go through an independent valuation and, and hire the team that you need to help you with the transition, everything goes to the Department of Labor for approval. Um, and that's to make sure that, you know, everything is legit. The owner's not taking a whole bunch of money out of the business and then leaving the future owners, the team uh, high and dry. And so we started. So in July, we sold 30% of the business to an ESOP, which is the Congratulations. You know, essentially thanks acts as a trust. We've always banked with national cooperative banks since the second store that we opened. So national cooperative bank was the bank that provided the funding uh, to help us with the 30% that we have sold initially. And so ESOPs, as well as uh, employee-owned cooperatives, and there are a few other uh, sort of ways that you can set these things up, are really a great opportunity for dealers to get out of their businesses and get some sort of fair value for them. And particularly, I'm, I'm speaking to the paint dealers who have fewer options. You know, Gina, you can sell your stores if you wanted to. You said you didn't want to go, you know, selling it to some sort of investment firm. There are companies that will buy, you know, 10, 12, 13 and bigger uh, ACE stores. There are companies that will buy investment firms that will buy lumber yards uh, and sort of roll them up onto one brand. But there really is not a viable exit strategy like that for paint retailers. And so 
I'm starting to talk a little bit. I know a paint retailer recently who went with employee-owned cooperative as an exit strategy. And I do think it offers dealers another opportunity. I think as business owners, we owe it to ourselves and our team to, to explore what these options are. I mean, some of the like private equity, it seems super easy, but there's some other really great ways that one might make you feel better, two might be more aligned with your culture, and three may in the long run give you and your team more money than you would have had you gone what what a lot of people would consider a more traditional route. So you can also be transitioning a family business to a family member and form a, a worker co-op or an ESOP at the same time and have the family member be a part of it or hold a portion of it. You know, Mark and I still have 70% of the business. And if we decided we wanted to sell that 70% to somebody else or not sell it for 20 years, we can do that. Now, that's not what we're planning to do, but we could do that. Um, so it gives you a lot of flexibility and a lot of options. And it, there's multiple reasons why somebody who owns a business would go in this direction. I heard somebody do a presentation on one of these uh, employee-owned cooperatives recently, and he did it because he felt like the 1% have enough. And so for reasons of basically social conscience, uh, he could have very easily sold his business to a private equity firm, like you say. But for reasons of social conscience, he, feel, he felt like... I'd rather put this in the hands of the 99%, the 1% already have enough. But yep. whether th that's your reason or or just, hey, the 1% can't have enough and I want to be part of them and I want to sell my business, it still gives you another opportunity, another entity that you can sell your business to. I'm working on, as part of an advisory um, forum now, a for, um, advisory group for another retailer who wants to transition out of his business. And he doesn't want to transition out for 10, 10 more years but he wants to have the plan in place and he wants to monetize some of the business. So even though he's going to be a part of it for the next 10 years, he and his wife have the opportunity to travel and do things that maybe they haven't had the luxury of doing. And this is one great way to monetize some of your really, really hard work, stay involved, but then also yeah. create this really awesome retention tool for the team who's there, who's going to take it into the next generation, who's helped you build it to where it is today. There's a lot of really great reasons. And you've only sold 30% of your business. So you're sort of like that uh, story that you just described. You know, you have started the process of transitioning out, but you still have all of these options. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we're getting ready to uh, head into the spring, Gina. What are you guys getting ready for here in D.C.? So, you know, seasons change in Washington, which is one of the coolest parts about being in the, the hardware and the paint business because the colors change, right? I think different seasons of the year, we sell different colors of paint and all of the big brands come out with their colors of the season. And so that makes it really fun. Our sort of niche in that world, one of our niches is pottery. Believe it or not, buying a flower pot for your house is like a fashion statement and you want it to match your decor or match your deck. So we have over a million dollar business in outdoor and indoor pottery. And this time of year, even though we sell it all year round, this time of year, the pallets and pallets of the stuff just starts coming in the back door. And we get so excited to see the pottery because that means that the, the live plants are shortly behind it. And then some of the other vendors that we buy for that, that ship seasonal things. So it's just this year in particular too, we're going to reopen our stores to the events that we have hosted in the past, big garden parties, ladies nights events, pop-ups on our sidewalk with makers market makers markets. We're really looking forward to welcoming the public back in in a much bigger way uh, than we've been able to do for two years. So 
Well, I hope it continues to stay healthy for everybody who's listening for this here in Connecticut. And it sounds like in DC as well, life is starting to return back to normal for us. And so I hope that that continues for you, Gina, and that you, you guys have a really successful spring. Thank you so much. Gina Schaefer, co-owner of a few cool hardware stores in Washington, DC. Thank you for making the time twice to be on my show today. I really appreciate it, Gina. I'll be back, I promise. (laughs) 